You're listening to The Quest for the Best is from Backlog Banter. We're on a side quest right now, trying to figure out which of the 10 2022 Best Picture nominees should take home the big award. Your hosts are Timo Nelson, Tucker Hazel, Tanner Dykstra, and Abram Buner. The Quest for the Bestest begins in just a moment. Hey everyone, welcome back to this side quest of The Quest for the Bestest. It's the podcast where we normally take a look at old movies, but this time, for this next couple months, we're going to be taking a look at all the 2022 nominees for Best Picture winner as chosen by the Academy of Motion Pictures and Sciences, or whatever it's called. My name is Timo. I'm joined, of course, by Tucker, Tanner, and Abram. And today, we are talking about Jane Campion's film, The Power of the Dog, starring Benedict Cumberbatch, Kirsten Dunst, Jesse Plemons, and Cody Schmidt-McPhee as our four main characters it is a Western film. It is many things, uh, I think, and I'm so excited to hear about it. I'm so excited, in fact, that I think that this deserves no housekeeping, no fall to roll. Let's dive right into this film immediately. I want to know your thoughts right now. Give it to me, or I'm going to have to maybe do some sort of uh, Western mean action towards you to extract it. A shooting, mm-hmm. a, a whipping, a some sort of... What do they do to bulls? They, branding, uh, branding. That the, yeah. The, the, uh, I was thinking quartering. of something else on on the bullfront, but tell me what you oh, think of the yes. movie. Oh, castration. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> on that, on that, uh, on that, that note, I will go ahead. On oh god, on that note, I will go ahead with my thoughts on the film, uh, because I'm the only one cool enough to have watched every single Best Picture nominee now. Already uh, cooler than all of you, and I can, I can, I can compare them all in my mind without letting you all know what I think. But I'll let you know what I think about the Power of the Dog. I really, really like the Power of the Dog. I think this, you know, this is uh, one of the films that is a presumed winner for that award this year and i think it deserves it uh originally before i watched it i was a little hesitant i'm like okay we have a western going into this you know that is a period piece this you know it's somewhere it's two hours and almost 30 or it's two hours and seven minutes i guess that's not too crazy yeah, yeah that's, uh, that's pretty but it's, it's long it's a period drama you know stuff like that i i i was like okay this could just be another a drop in the bucket of best picture winners potentially but coming out the other end of it i really really enjoyed it i think this movie has some brilliant stuff i think it's very understated but in the same way it conveys so much if you're willing to uh if you're willing to look into uh, uh, to the character's actions here i think they're really interesting i think this is a beautiful looking film one probably one of the best looking movies i've seen uh as of late and maybe ever we'll get to i'd have to look back into uh my own film movies i have to look into all movies but certainly one of the most beautiful looking films that i've seen recently and uh i think campion uh, does a lot of great stuff behind the camera i think all the performers do a fantastic job in front of the camera yeah i i'm excited to get into the minutia of this film as well okay tucker what do you think about it this is an interesting film because I, I'm i on the same side as Tanner, but the scale has shifted significantly downward because while I think this is a very good film, I frankly do think it is kind of just a drop in the bucket of uh, Best Picture winners. Um, this film is very understated, but personally, I feel that that's to its detriment. A lot of the start of the runtime in this movie, the first 45 minutes to an hour, are, are so understated they don't really feel that important and because of that it's kind of like this movie feels like the start of an interesting story it starts to gain steam as the near the end as things start happening and characters start meeting and conflicts are are starting and resolved 
but because so much of that runtime to me feels underutilized, I didn't feel like I was getting enough out of these characters to really care. That being said, it is obviously well made. I think the actors are great. It, it is well directed. It is a gorgeously shot movie. It is high bars on all the production fronts, but in terms of pacing and uh, and how that ends up playing into the overall feeling of the story, I was a little underwhelmed, and, and, there, and therefore I don't think it necessarily stands out other than being a very good modern Western. Okay. Abram, your thoughts? Uh, I didn't know what this movie was until like three hours ago. <laughs> um, and, and so I had no expectations going into it. Um, and I, I, I think this movie is stunning. Um, this is probably the most engaged I've been by any of the movies we've had to watch for this show in a long, long time. I, I really, Interesting. I was really incredibly in impressed. And we, we talk sometimes on Quest about a movie really pulling on your balls, right? And, and we see that happen literally in this film, which is quite an uncomfortable sequence, in my opinion. Um, a nice little uh, kind of heavy-handed but but nice sim symbolic moment also. But what I want to say on that front is that in the Questian sense, we usually mean that to say that the film is full of tension. And I think what this film does better than many that I've watched in a long time is evoke tension. I think that the score mm. is amazing. I think that the sound design is amazing. And I think in conjunction with these performances, which I think are almost all fantastic, there's just this sense of dread I felt. And I couldn't take my eyes off the screen. I was incredibly, incredibly impressed by The Power of the Dog. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I think I find myself... A little bit more aligned with Tucker on this. I thought that the film hits all the base levels of a Best Picture um, best picture nominee, for sure, and all the base levels of one that could potentially end up being the winner. Um, but I I was a little... I think I agree with Tucker in its understatedness. The, it it kind of felt a little long and a little dragging in the, in, the, in the first half, but then as the second half, as it wrapped up, as it ramped up, it became um, a lot more interesting to me, and the characters were interacting in, in interesting ways. Um, but I found myself being fairly confused and not really having a great sense of what was like going on and where the film was going towards the beginning of it. Um, and I think that the, the like, I, I want to talk about the thematic, you know, material in the film and some of the subtextual leanings of it, but it didn't all, it wasn't all moving towards this like cohesive whole in my mind, all of yeah. all of the different elements. And so while I think it's very beautifully made, um, of course, shot in New Zealand, beautiful, beautiful vistas that look more impressive than real life Montana does. Um, <laughs> there, I, I think the story um, left a little bit lacking and I'm just gonna say it, um, Benedict Cumberbatch as our lead, uh, as a Western lead. He's I, fine. You, he's not great. <laughs> Is what I'm gonna say. <laughs> let's start. Let's start. Let's start. Let's start with old Benadryl Cumberpatch. Okay. There we go. Well, let's get you all got, the you, name. Let's get all the name jokes. Why off would our you chest. ever pr pronounce his name properly? It's so much yeah, more yeah. fun just to fuck it up. Yeah. I actually agree with Timo. That's why I said that I thought the performances were almost all fantastic. And, and mm. I, I think I, I, I think that uh, Benedict has some really nice moments in this film, um, but I think that he he goes too far he's too it, mm. there's too much of him on the screen sometimes mm. not not only when he's running naked through a river <laughs> but 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 when he's really emoting to an extent where it feels almost theatrical in the sense of we're watching a performance on on the stage right yeah 
I, I think combined with, with the accent he tries to put on, which I think is effective for the most part, but rings a little bit hollow when you know how Benedict Cumberbatch actually sounds. Mm-hmm. I, I think that in a film that does feel very subdued, I think to its benefit, he he didn't feel that way, but not not in a way that felt like it had a purpose. It just felt like he was giving maybe 5 to 15% too much sometimes. And I found that sure. to be a little bit jarring. He might, felt, he might have been going to that for that Oscar a bit too hard. It, that's exactly kind and, of and how And I, you know what? It's kind of paying off for him because he's like in the top two or three for, for winning. Well, aside from the obvious favorite for this year. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. That's kind of how I, how I think about about his performance. It, it, it's like straddling this line between like overacting. I feel like saddling. It's saddling. You know, he's riding <gasps> around a in between this, yeah. these two extremes. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that that like I think, but he, it's because this is like a role and this is such a character that he's inhibiting. He he lets him. He's letting himself go a bit bigger. Um, and maybe a little more grandiose than I that then then that fits the the real subtle nature of the film and sure and maybe moves into a little bit of a slightly out of control feel to his performance um, at least for me when he's really really emoting like crazy um, it works for the story but I don't know if it makes for the greatest performance ever. Yeah, there's clearly. Uh, I disagree with you, Abram, on, on saying that this doesn't feel like it has a, a story I, a concept or story point to it. Like, sure. I feel like that there is a very clear direction here. Of he yeah. is so far and away the, the stick out of the he's a stick in the mud of the cast, both in terms of being the point of conflict for essentially everyone, but also he is he feels alienated from everyone. He, he all these things set him apart, and he is also, I, I think, on a subtextual level. A, increasing this grandioseness to cover up his repress, repressed sexuality and this history that he doesn't want getting out and filling this in this role this that uh, of Bronco Henry like trying to be the crazy macho asshole that he puts it on and I can see what they're going for but for, frankly I, well I, I thought that the character was pretty interesting his performance didn't necessarily wow me I think he he sticks out from that regard in terms of I was pretty impressed by everyone else him being in the top, not the number one, but top running of best actor of the year, I'm like, I don't quite see that from a personal from a personal perspective. Um, yeah, I mean, I can definitely see because initially while I was watching the film, I'm like, I like the writing uh, a lot more than I like the performances themselves. But I think, I mean, I just, I, I just like him. I, I, he, I think all the actors, including Benedict Cumberbatch, live up to the writing that, um. Did Campion write this? I I, I, I should so. I should have. Yeah, this she she adapted head. it from the yeah. It's book adapted or from the book. whatever the hell. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. Mm. She she is the writer on this along with uh, Thomas Savage. Uh, but yeah, I, I I really do think that uh, I think everyone lives up here. I think Tucker's right that um his his sort of over the topness that I didn't necessarily feel. I mean, he's certainly more emotive than everybody else. I would say, but that is because you know he's putting on this facade of like the super the the super macho cowboy who's you know he's lassoing folks and he's shooting barbs at people that he doesn't like and he's basically. And he doesn't like anyone. He doesn't like anyone. Exactly. And I think he that's alienates part of the thing from everyone. Is yeah. that yeah, he's alienating himself so much that it kind of does feel like he's got a very strong note to his character because he for, for a lot of the movie's runtime, he's acting pretty similar similarly to almost everyone in the cast 
all, all the time. When mm-hmm. you get to the end, he starts getting a little, uh, obviously more nuanced and acting differently to different situations. But I think maybe that's where the overbearingness of his performance come in is because he is slinging those barbs and acting all macho in almost every situation, even when he's like by himself sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I, I just I just think that it it works for this, and I think he does have uh, some some moments of where he's uh, a bit a bit well, he approaches the role with a bit of a lighter touch uh where well ironically in the scene where you know he he's really gripping something really hard which is uh this the scene in which uh i think it's it's the scene where he's cleaning um bronco henry's saddle which is uh i think it's after it's after um george and rose uh are consummating their marriage in the room next to him and you know he's very obviously sexually frustrated by this and socially frustrated by this by his you know his 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 role in the house being challenged by george's new wife and uh he goes out and, and cleans bronco henry's saddle in a clearly oh, he cleans that saddle in, oh, in a clearly sexual fashion it, it is a sexual release for him clearly because as we come to find out him and bronco henry had some something uh resembling a sexual relationship we are led to believe um, but I think that I think he has moments like that where he's by himself, where he lets uh, something uh, something a bit softer come through, like uh, when he's in the I guess it's more of a swimming hole in his little his cabinet to Narnia, as Tucker kept referring to it. <laughs> he crawls through the cabinet to Narnia, and he's in that he's that in that lake, and he's um, you know he's washing himself with the handkerchief that belonged to Bronco Henry. I think those are some moments where. Um, Benedict Cumberbatch uses a bit of a lighter touch in his performance here. And I think it all works across the board. It's when he's being more, I think, when he when he's has more like action and more movement to do with like props and stuff that he he mm-hmm. that element of his performance really comes out. Yeah, sure. I think the I think the scene that just pushed it too far is when he comes back and realizes that Rose has sold all of the hides and he's like oh, yeah, losing his okay. mind in the barn. And we 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 come to the scene that'll be played in his Oscar reel. Yeah, and you feel it. You know, I just I just think that there are moments here where the the sort of subtlety that you're talking about, Tanner, which I completely agree with, just sort of mm-hmm. falls away and it sure. becomes British man bug-eyed doing his western accent you know i should say i should say i, I can i can get on board with the whole accent thing because it's yeah. really just like a slight twist of his dr strange uh from nowhere <laughs> usa accent you know that he does where dr strange is like a new yorker or whatever but he's just he just has like an american accent <laughs> I, i'm dr strange what's going on here <laughs> what i'd like to talk about next actually because because tucker touched on it a little bit is sort of just sort of just the plot how we move throughout the storyline because like i said i knew nothing about the movie um but as soon as the, we, we have him like trying to take a lot of presents at the table and he's burning the rose i knew immediately he is gay he's hyper projecting his masculinity he's gonna go after um peter he's gonna go after what, what's the kid's name again i forget peter 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 he's gonna go after peter mm-hmm. i i kind of understood immediately what the narrative was in in I think I love the actually the ending of the film, which I want to talk about, but I kind of knew how we we're going to track throughout the film. I don't actually think that on a plot level, the movie is that compelling. I, I think it's kind of sort of an archetypal narrative, mm. but I, I think what's effective about it is the way that it's told, it's the, the, the filmmaking, the editing. That, that's really, for me, what, what conveys the strength of the film, because at least in my opinion, until we get to Peter's ultimate deception of... Mm-hmm. of, of um, 
of um Phil. I don't know his name. Oh, Phil. Th- Phil. That I, that I started that I started to really feel hooked by the plot line. It was more of the sure. subtextual material and the sort of filmmaking elements that that, that carried me through. I think. I hate sure. to I hate to do this to you, Abram, but I think I knew that uh, Phil was gay. Uh, far before that scene happened. Oh, get fucked. <laughs> yeah, how about that? Whoa, I knew, I knew he was gay before we started the movie because I knew the plot of I knew the plot of this movie before <laughs> we started I, it. So I didn't know the that? plot. Okay, okay. I myself has been owned. Yeah. The natural cycle of things, to own and to be owned. But mm-hmm. um yeah, I think that the story for me I I, I kind of like to think about this uh, the all the different um sections in the film and how it's broken up into these like little almost self-contained but not really self-contained you know the enumerated bits of the film and how the last one is chapters the chapters and the last chapter is far longer than the rest of them um Mm. i don't know it does that affect how you guys uh view the film and view the story at all and how it's broken up into those or is it just kind of a moot point um I honestly see it as more of just a through-line plot. I couldn't tell you what happens in any particular chapter because uh, I did view this as, as as one whole chunk. I mean, I remember that the, the, the real action of the film, which I'm sure we'll get to you guys' issues with, you know, the sort of meandering nature of its first half, uh, the real action of the film comes kicks in in a, a chapter four uh, when Peter returns to the ranch from, from, from medical school, I believe, is where he's going. Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah, I think that's where that's the only like sticking point, like pin, like oh, this happens in chapter four. But for, as for the rest of it, I, I really view this as a a, a through line, complete plot that uh, doesn't really matter if it's broken in the chapters or not for me. Yeah, the chapter thing it pretty much only denotes when hey, a period of a relatively significant period of time has elapsed between yeah. this sequence and this sequence, and, it, and it's like pressing chapter select on a DVD. Like, it really doesn't uh, impact the, the pacing of the film that much. And, and frankly, it, it it's neither here nor there. I really don't think that's a very important element. It does make mm-hmm. it feel like, okay, we are, we're telling a, 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 liter- a literary story. Yeah. You're even putting chapter numbers, like, <laughs> boom, chapter two. Uh, yeah. And I'm like, all right, yeah, this is kind of book-like. But um, I, I think the fact that that... Chapter four does twist the film on on its head tonally uh, and and ramping up the plot ally uh, does certainly make it feel a little bit strange that we have of uh, most of the film take place in chapter four slash five I think there's another chapter inserted yeah. somewhere in there but you you don't really feel it too much um, and but then the first three are kind of just set up for chapter four for that for that action to finally start taking place which is where I think. My pacing with my problems with the pacing of the film come in is that I'm totally happy and and engaged watching the first th- three chapters of this film, but they're not particularly unique, and I think that's why it takes two chapter four for me to be like, oh, I, of course I see where this is going, but I'm finally able to grab onto something here that I kind of feel like I haven't seen before, even if that's not necessarily the case. But finally, the intrigue is getting going. There's there's setup for intrigue for that first 45, 50 minutes. And, but then, okay, here we go. Mm-hmm. We can finally start getting into it. Um, I, but I think, uh, and this is maybe more of a pacing discussion, that I think there is a lot of uh, plot that unfolds in those first three, those first three chapters. That is greatly important. You know, we get the setup of uh, Rose versus Phil, and how Phil is really psychologically torturing Rose, um, who ends up probably being, you know, her, 
his main point of attack, even though initially it seems like Peter, though, he gets to escape off to medical school. Rose is stuck here with this man who is who loathes her and is psychologically abusing her uh, through in various ways, forcing her to become an alcoholic through all, his, all of his abuse. And um, we, we juxtapose that with uh, George and Rose, of course, and we get to understand a bit more of the power dynamics at work here. Uh, we get the scene where uh, George and Phil's uh, parents show up to the ranch and like we get a we get a bit more about their past that they were they were college boys out, out, out east or something like that and uh you know the governor shows up as well and he, we, we really understand phil's sort of disdain for authority and any reminder of his past life that wasn't him being a super cool cowboy guy but yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have to say I really never found the the pacing to be an issue, which is a rare thing for me to say about almost any movie because I get quickly bored when I watch a lot, a lot of films, frankly. I dropped a glue stick. Sorry, audio listeners. Sorry, I'm The fact that a man is using boy. a glue stick in the year of our Lord 2022 and he's not in <laughs> elementary school art class, that's <laughs> that's a worrisome I, I like, sign. I like to take a bite of it between homework assignments. <laughs> oh, that's see. a great point. But, but um... I think what's effective about the film is it sort of establishes a sense of claustrophobia in that first hour. Mm. The, the ways that... I, and, and Tanner, I, I love the scene when the governor and the parents come over. Mm-hmm. The, the, un, the uncomfortable nature of that exchange when they're just talking and the conversation is so shallow. Yeah. It's, whereas Phil, I'm not going to drink George's concoction. It, there's just this gut feeling that I think the mm-hmm. first hour of the film evokes where... Everybody is trapped here, and it's Rose playing the piano, and then Benedict shredding on the banjo. Oh yeah, uh, that's way, a great moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the God, way that's, that's so rude. <laughs> so yeah. rude. I Am love. I, I, I actually really love how the film is very slow. Because as I was saying, the plot is is not. I don't want to call it thin, but it's very basic. There's really one major point of action, which is the murder of Phil, but we don't even learn that that was a murder until afterwards. It, it's mm-hmm. it's more about I think the ways that the film makes you feel about the interactions happening, and the fact that we take so much time to just be on this ranch to me is really really effective, and why I kind of couldn't get the movie out of my head because I couldn't get away from these characters. Mm-hmm. Sure, mm. that's I I like the point that you're making there, Abram. To me, the the whole time that we spend on the ranch, you know, when we, in a film, kind of like the one that we talked about on the main stage of Quest for the Best this last week. Which we, but, we, we won't talk about too much here, don't worry. No, I'm just saying that, um, that in that film we talked a lot about, like, the place as a character. And I think that there is some sort of element here that where the place is trying to be a character. But for me, the beginning, the first, let's say, third, little more than a third of the film feels like... Um, a lo- beyond the initial exposition, I should say. That little bit there before chapter four, before we get the return of, um, of what's his name? Peter. Peter. Um, yep. It feels like a lot of moments that are working to build this um, atmosphere that is, you know, it's very atmospheric. It's very evocative. It makes you, I think it, it definitely makes you feel, but all, to me, it, it still doesn't go a whole lot. It doesn't go anywhere um, in regards to the larger plot, you know? And so the just that beginning part, while I think I I am, like Tucker, engrossed, I'm watching the film, I'm paying attention, um, and it's it doesn't do anything to make me not want to watch the film. I just mm-hmm. think that the way it it the plotting of the first half um, doesn't necessarily end up with me feeling like this 
kind of like this slow burn build until the end. It's like, we've got some stuff here, some context for a while, and then we have some story for a while. Exactly. And yeah. if, and if, and, if and I could have the story starting in the context and then boom, blows up in the end w with this murder, um, that would have, I think that would have improved my, my feeling on like the plotting storyline of the film. Yeah, it, it's just interesting that the film is from a from a um, conflict perspective. I would say pretty pretty imbalanced. Like, there's obviously a, a lot more um, going on in that in that last chapter in terms of the way that Peter is interact. It, it, uh, Peter's return upsets the the flow of what's going on there, um, and and it is. I just feel like there there's so much that happens at the beginning that feels like. That feels only like setup to get to what ultimately ends up happening. Where I feel the real story of the film is, is the relationship between Phil and Peter. Like, I, I was like, I know this is going to happen. I'm just waiting for it to happen. Yeah, yeah, I understand he's rude. I understand he's, to he's torturing Rose. I, I understand George is gone. Um, but all of that just is like, yep, yep, yep. Okay, when are we, when are we finally going to get the ball rolling? And, and for me, that... that felt like it took a little too long. Well, I understand the film is going for an understated nature. I feel like that can sometimes feel like the burn is a little too slow. Hmm. Sure. I mean, I, I, I can see that. I was just really, I just think that everything that this film does is really engaging and how it uses um, these, you know, it, it, each scene in itself feels unique. It doesn't feel like we're going over the same uh, material to me it, even if we're establishing some of the same themes and the same character traits we do it in different and interesting ways yeah sure. uh, so i so so i didn't really feel that and when peter comes back it really feels like okay now the dread has set in you know we've established that phil is this tyrannical ranch head or whatever that it that is you know exerting his control over everything but now we get peter back and especially after peter see and this is this gets into uh some i think some differences in how you can read the film uh which tucker and i had the discussion about after we finished watching it which we'll definitely get into yeah i i, I think i'm gonna get into it right here for me is that i i feel like uh, after Peter sees Phil in the in the watering hole by himself, you know, bathing himself with Bron Bronco Henry's handkerchief, I think that Phil, he's really, he really takes on a, he becomes a pre uh, basically a predator for Peter, I, I feel, you know. Um, he, he, he sees Peter as a, as a volatile object that he needs to control, much like everything else in, on the ranch. Um... So he's like, okay, I get the feeling that you know Peter is gay. I mean, I've I've been I've been making fun of him for that for uh, for a while now. What what what's everyone smiling at? What's going on here? I just sent. Wait, so no ranch head in the oh, chat? Okay, all right. I, I was, I'm sorry. I was like, did no, I, that, did I say something points. wrong? Did no, I no, you're fine. you're okay, fine. Okay, okay. Getting the train back on the tracks here. I feel that that Phil, after that scene, is very much like, okay, I'm going to uh, make use of Peter's sexuality, something that him and I have in common, but I feel I need to repress because it makes me less of a man, and you know, I can I can control Peter using this. I can give him the attention and sort of turn him against his mother because he he reads Peter as the same as him, and ultimately Peter is not. He thinks that 
Peter is afraid of his sexuality. He feels ashamed of it. And he feels that he needs to, you know, become a, a, a real man's man like me. Where Peter is, you know, uh, really comfortable in that. He's, he's comfortable in who he is. And we especially see that once he returns from medical school, when he's walking through that camp of cowboys who are, you know, making fun of him. And he strides up to the tree and he, I don't know what he does. Looks he at like, the birds Looks at second. the bird and he's like, the, yeah. that's a bird, all right. And he he's turns like, yep. around. Ah, good, good bird watching for me yeah. today. And, and I, think turns that, I think that Peter is really interesting as a as this r the real mastermind of the film. Once he returns from medical school, you know, I think he's always he's always knowing that Phil is is sort of uh, grooming him and and setting him on this path. But ultimately, he has a he has a plan for how he's going to kill Phil because he knows what Phil's been doing to his mother, and he's going to enact that no matter what Phil does. And I think. At the end, you know, when when he says that, oh, I have some 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 leather that you can use to finish this rope, Phil starts to soften a little bit. He's like, oh, maybe I was wrong for doing this to this kid for so long, but that murder plan's already already in action, and uh, you know, Phil's putting it into putting putting the final uh, chess piece into play, and I think that's what makes the whole story so interesting. But especially uh, as we've been talking about the the that latter chapter four and four and five. But yeah, I, I'd like to know what you guys think. I talked for a while there. Yeah, well, I'm about to make an equally long point, which is kind of this kind of that you've unearthed the crux of why I think this movie is really effective in my mind. Okay, I have to walk through this. I think the it, it actually actually activated that pacing question. I, I think the point of, in my opinion, spending so long prior to the return of Peter is to establish the sense of dread where Phil is a real danger. Like, I, I got the feeling that he was a real threat to Rose, and by extension, a real threat to Peter. So when he comes back, there's this, in my mind, continual ambiguity w within what his actions are. Because I, I, I think there's this feeling that, as I felt for a lot of the film, that Phil viewed Peter as, like, a sort of externalization of himself the part of him he needed to kill. And I thought, I legitimately thought that he was going to take Peter out to ride and take then kill him. Take him off the cliff him. or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I, I think the film kind of establish, establishes this when he literally emasculates the bull as Peter mm -hmm. is arriving. And I, and I think that sort of visual language communicates that this is now going to happen to Peter too. And I, and I think that then we see the scenes that pretty much overtly going to visually establish Phil as being gay when we go through the Narnia cupboard and we're looking mm -hmm. through the box and everything. Yes, yes. And then, and then there's a, a kind of shift of the dynamic where I'm no longer certain that Peter is going to die. I start to feel, is is Phil now just trying? Does he see a new Bronco Henry? Does he actually have this sort of repressed and taboo relationship he's trying to fulfill? And you think that that's the case with the scene as they're passing back and forth the cigarette and we learn about how Bronco Henry saved his life, whether that's mm -hmm. literal or a sort of spiritual saving by them finally being together. We don't really know. There's that sort of level of ambiguity again. And then the ways that the plot finally clicks into place in a second and these sort of small cues that you lose in this sort of dread of how does this relationship play out, the anthrax, the, the beautiful shot of... Phil's hands in the water and his blood in, in the mm -hmm. water with the, we know, anthrax-laced cowhide. Mm -hmm. And then you just get a lot of dialogue. He died, it was poisoning, it was anthrax, and it clicks. And all of a sudden, 
the entire power dynamic that we had the viewer have set up in our head is flipped flipped on its head because Mm -hmm. suddenly it's Peter who was there and always on his mother's side. Mm -hmm. He was always there to, to, to kill the man who was killing her. And I think that the way that this plays out in this really circuitous manner is completely masterful. Mm -hmm. I agree. I totally, totally agree. I think those are both quite excellent readings from you too. And, and just like, when, what Tanner was talking about just w- was reminding me of the first lines of voiceover in the film. It was like, you know, what would a, a man, I don't remember the lines exactly, but like a man who should do anything to save his mother and, and mm-hmm. essentially setting Peter up for that at the very beginning of the film. Um, so, so, and then there's all this, all this contextual stuff they were talking about. And so you almost forget about it by the time it, it is there. And you're mm-hmm. like, and then when, when I see him finally commit um, the murder and and like you say, Abram, it all clicks into place and like everything is set out straight and I understand what has happened. I immediately think back to those first lines. Yeah, I, I absolutely think that Peter is the star of the show here, and I think maybe that's also why uh, Benedict Cumberbatch's performance whelmed me no over or under just completely whelmed me is i i do feel that peter is the most interesting piece of the puzzle here by by a significant margin and the way that he is a more overtly effeminate gay man in in the time where that was completely taboo and we see that uh played out through phil's and completely repressed sexuality all that is is fascinating the way that peter interacts with everyone else and is close to his mother and is able to bring Phil down is is fascinating. And actually, and this is where, where Tanner and I disagree, but we're, we're sort of establishing here as a, a point of contention, but not a point of disagreement, but not mm-hmm. in any good or bad way, is I actually view Phil's arc in the in the last set section of the film after uh, Peter and Peter sees him in the lake and, and Peter realizes he's gay and uh, and Phil realizes he's watching him because he's gay. And like, there, there's a moment there. And what I see that as is uh, Phil realizing that he has someone to connect to on this level, even if it's not entirely overt. And he starts to soften. He finally realizes he doesn't need to be completely repressed in this and starts training up uh, Peter, sorry, Peter as as the next Bronco Henry, as the next him. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I think there is an interesting story there for for phil where he is not being corruptive necessarily or 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 um maliciously corruptive to peter in that last act of the film but he's actually building a relationship with him and he sees himself in him and he wants to be kind and he wants to teach him how to do these things because he knows that peter has that capability and then when when uh, peter kills him it actually in my eyes is is a little more fascinating to get peter um Peter being the malicious one and, and, and being a de- defensively, you know, justifiably malicious. But that actually first half of the film, holy shit, Phil is one of the biggest assholes I've ever seen on, in cinematic history. He's mm-hmm. just so rude. He's, he's shredding the banjo while, while Rose <laughs> is trying to tinkle, tinkle little star. Um, but then <laughs> then it's really Peter that is the malicious one in the end. And Phil is actually kind of softening for that last third of the movie. And I find that to be a really interesting inverting of the power dynamic that entirely centers around Peter. And I think Phil being not entirely malicious, not entirely corruptive, is my is how I read the film, and I find that really interesting. Hmm, Timo, I, T- Abram, do you agree? Do you disagree? Yeah, hearing these two sides of the table, I, I, I might... Because hmm, I like... 
I like your analysis of like the power inversion and the who is malicious flipping in the film. Um, but I feel that that practically in the plot, Tanner's um, I- idea is more represented. So I'm like, hmm. hmm. Analytically, I like Tucker's analysis well, more, but I think that it is it is less shown in the plot. So where do I stand in all that? The, hmm, I've yet to. The decide. reason I say that my or I would say that I feel mine is is represented is because Rose takes a pretty significant backseat. Ever when when Peter returns home, we do see her pretty consistently. But we don't see her interacting with Phil. We don't see Phil continuing this uh, this driving force to probably ultimately kill Rose. Those scenes pretty much entirely dissipate. So in my eyes, he has stepped away from that because he is softening. He is attaching to Peter in in a genuine way rather than trying to corrupt him in in sort of some dark way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, the the point of difference there is that you know, I I I really like your reading Tucker, and I'd be interested to go back to this film eventually and sort of try and, and watch it through that lens. But the, mm-hmm. I, the point of difference there with Rose, who I want to talk about, I want to talk about Cody Smith McPhee and Jesse Plemons and Kirsten Dunst. There's a lot of great performances what? in here that I want to talk about. Um, but the the point of difference there is that uh, you know obviously I, I think that that is Benedict Cumberbatch, you know. Knowing that the that the one key, the one last key that he was missing to really you know drive Rose into the dirt psychologically and physically, you know her drinking is affecting her physical health, is to steal Peter away from her, and I I, I think that's I think that's what it is. But I, I like I said I think your reading is 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 really neat too. Neat, yeah, it's neat, Abram. Yeah, uh, I I just uh, I just feel like the film in the first half doesn't give you a reason to want to give him the benefit of the doubt. And for mm. me, the sudden shift in, in his tenor towards Peter reads from my perspective as malicious, as sure. intentional on, on, on the behalf of Phil. I agree not, when that yeah. first happens entirely. Sure. I, but I just, I, I have a hard time divorcing myself from, from the sort of mood that's established by the first half of the film. Mm. Sure. Um, even though I certainly, as I was saying, there's an ambiguity there, and there's certainly an undercurrent of affection, whether it's being weaponized by either party there. Sure, sure, sure. That sort of underpins the entire relationship. Yeah, I think, that's, I, and I think that's part of the fun of of discussing this film is mm-hmm. I, I, I think Tanner's probably right. I think, frankly, I think mine is a more interesting reading of the film, <laughs> and, and and maybe we can ring a ding ding, call up Jane Campion, and be like. Hey, what do you really mean? Or maybe we could read the book. That's no, not no, 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 never no, no. Uh, but speaking of, I'd like to run through the wins and noms here a second, if I may. If the it, noms. In, in I guess it's no oh, just the noms. Yeah, I'm what? so used, I'm, I'm so used to saying the wins and noms, but just the nominations now, um, because I think that there is, uh, you know, th- this is an avenue to talk about a lot of the other aspects we haven't talked about yet. Mm-hmm. So uh, this film has. Two actors in the supporting actor category, Cody Smith-McPhee and Jesse Plemons, who I both really, really liked in this. Uh-huh. Uh, we have a nomination for Jane Campion for Adapted Screenplay. I think whoever I said earlier, the Savage Guy, I think he might be the original author when I said yes, that. I he's, yes, he's, he's the book. Okay, so yeah, just Jane Campion. That, that's, by the way, that's job. the exact same reason why William Shakespeare is credited as many film writers, <laughs> even though that is categorically false. It's yes. also categorically true. Think about it. Uh, we also have Campion for Best Director. Uh, I think this is a very well-directed film. Uh, the Obviously, first time a woman has ever been nominated for Best yes. Director twice. 
Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Historic for Jane Campion here. Uh, obviously, this is nominated for Best Picture. Uh, we have Best Actor in a Leading Role for Bumberdon Cumberdon. Uh, we have <laughs> uh, Best Actress in a Supporting Role for Kirsten Dunst. We have a nomination for Production Design, for Sound, for Cinematography, for Editing, and for uh, Original Score. Johnny and, Greenwood. And we're starting at the top here, by the way. Yeah. This is the most nominated film of the entire yeah. show. 12, so 12 it's all downhill from here, boys. Yeah. 12 nominations for The Power of the Dog. Any thoughts on any of those uh, categories and uh, elements of the film that were nominated or ones that uh, weren't? I have some I, thoughts on the cinematography of this film because yes. it was filmed in New Zealand. I mentioned it earlier. It's I think mm -hmm. I think even though the the film is like very beautiful a lot of the time um I feel like it rests a little bit much on these sweeping vistas in its cinematography. I think if when you dive into the nitty-gritty of how the shots are composed, how the characters are lit, I am a little bored by it in that the I think that there is a lot you can do with interesting. I was really looking at the faces and really dialing into how how are these scenes lit, you know. Looking at Tanner right now, he's got a little bit of shine on one side of his face and, I do. and there's some I, fill I really on the other one. I don't like that light being there. But I do. I like that light being there because it adds interest, and there are no lights <laughs> like that in the film. They, it's it's, it's very, a pretty flatly lit movie, for it's sure. It's a very flatly lit movie, and so to me, I'm like, okay, if I know the film is very subtle, and I know that the story is subtle, the acting is, is supposed to be by and large subtle, The even the aspect of it being a Western is very subtle. It's not like, you know, rootin' tootin' rootin', yeah, exactly. Western <laughs> films. And so, to me, I... I have a hard time discerning if it's like a choice to make it all look like that or if it's if it, or if it wasn't a choice and and this kind of flat lighting on all the characters all the time uh is just there. So, I don't know. You know, it it, it kind of slightly tilts into the negative for me, but not a huge amount. Sure. I I have to say I think it's I think it's deliberate because I think that there are some staggeringly beautiful shots in this film and I don't think that the level of artistry that gets you the shot of the blood hitting the the golden ferns or the hands in the bowl of the rawhide or those incredibly tight shots of the rope against Phil's leg. Thing. I don't think you get shots like that in a film that is not conscious about every other visual choice it's making. And, and I find that the, the ways that this sort of cinematic mediation of the narrative fades into the more natural cinematography to be quite effective for the narrative that we're telling here. I, I think it's quite a stunning film visually. I yeah, think those I, close up shots, yeah, like you're talking about with the blood on the um on the wheat, the golden, you know, that golden, golden color with the, the super dark red, that's like a wallpaper level shot right there. That one is truly <laughs> I really truly excellent. I really, you know, you can see that being like uh, pretty bloated on Max as like a, one of the selectable uh, wallpapers that can oh, rotate sure. But I really hope they don't do that because that's blood and that's nasty. That's gross. That is gross. Uh, but yeah, but I, 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 I... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Tucker. I was going to say, I, I disagree with Timo. I think the, the, the flat lighting in the indoor sequences and stuff like that is totally fine. I, I, it doesn't push me in either particular direction. However, what does push me in any particular direction it are those close-up shots, are those environmental shots, which the film is hanging its hat on, and yeah. I think for good reason, because they're phenomenal. And, and what the what the film does in a really interesting way is drain a lot of color from the world. I think I think that shot of the um, 
of, of the blood on the wheat is actually one of the more, most colorful shots in the entire film. Um, but I, I think that's a deliberate because what this film does is show the beauty in this sort of gray to brown scale palette. You've got, for the most part, gray skies, sort of a, a, a beige ground grass, dark brown um, buildings and walls and and gray, brown, beige costumes on everyone all the time. Like your shirt, and I think that's it's gore- pretty much It's pretty much... Yeah, the- earth tones. Yeah, earth exactly. Tones. Um, um, and I think it really works because of that. It's very unique. It's mm. not drained of color because they don't know that color exists, but they're like, no, this is a deliberate color palette, and I love that. Yeah. Um, as I told Tucker, I just have a soft spot for uh, when films can, when when films capture the beauty of the American West, even though this is not the American West, but it tricked me. I did not know it was shot in New Zealand until I looked up some trivia for this film, which I hope to get to in a in a tidge. Uh, but yeah, I I totally agree. I, I don't have a lot other, a lot to add outside of what you guys said. Um, beautiful looking film. I would use a number of these shots as wallpapers for my laptop. How about that? Hey, you can. I mean, pretty well, good. Actually, there's actually not a ton of high quality screenshots of this movie out there. I'm sure we'll get more now that the movie's mm-hmm. more popular, but you you can do it eventually. Sure, eventually. Um, I would like to talk about some of the supporting performances here because this film does have uh, three nominations in those categories. Mm-hmm. Uh, who, and I think I'll, I'd like to start with Cody Smith McPhee. He is the uh, the current the current favorite to win the best supporting actor category. Over um, J.K. Simmons. Over J.K. Simmons and being the Ricardos. <laughs> Sorry, Tucker. Sorry. I know you. You're the you're the one person in the world who loves that performance. He doesn't. We, we, I, no one does. That's a joke. Um, but we talked about Peter quite a bit already. I just want to say uh, some quick things I thought of while we were discussing Peter's character. Um, I think that Cody Smith McPhee uh, and, and Peter as a character uh, are interesting in in a lot of ways that might have gone unnoticed. Uh, that I really only thought of when Tucker was bringing up how, you know, he is sort of um, uh, effeminate in a way that was obviously not very, uh, not very popular uh, in in society back in the, back in the 1920s. Believe it or not. Believe it or not. Um, But I did have a question for you guys. Do we ever get an overt sort of uh, for sure thing that Peter is gay? Am I just, uh, am I just blanking on something here? Or is it possible, you know, he's not gay He's just like he's just aware that um, Phil is, and he's using that to his advantage. Well, I mean, the the the, the queer coded nature of this character is so off the goddamn charts that I think you're kind of ridiculous for uh, even assuming that a obvious yes, okay, confirmation he's gay. I don't think that necessarily matters because it's not just that he's using it against Phil. We see him before he's even met Phil, and so I, I think that. The, you know, I I'm not I'm, I'm confused why he's even a question, frankly. I mean, uh, you can, uh, I don't know. We, you know, I think that's I think it's mostly clear, and I think that is you know a pretty a pretty common reading. So I was just asking, I was just posing a question, you know. But I did have a, I did have a little a little note to add that um I think that he he does sort of play with this notion of him being you know effeminate and you know divorced from all the the the, the manly toughness of of cowboy culture. The usual goings on of the, the ranch. usual goings on because we see him uh, capture that rabbit, and we're like, oh. He's gonna have a little pet for the for the rest of the movie, but no, he's just cold and calculating. He's like, I caught this rabbit to to cut it open and, and use as a, a a learning tool to dissect it for my own medical knowledge. And I think that's a really interesting moment that um passed me by until I thought of it just during this review. You know that we you know we we think of uh 
Peter as this sort of softer character who uses a softer touch in his personal life. But no, he's he's cold and calculating. He'll he'll cut open a rabbit that he just caught. He doesn't care. He kills two rabbits, rabbits um, yeah. in the course of the Oh, film. yeah, true. It's because Phil makes him kill a rabbit later, and he's like, okay, and he just does it. And so yep. that is the part that, hmm, maybe, maybe Tucker is right, that he is enticing Phil into this situation because Man, he y'all is... Y'all take the credit for that? I was, I was like, as I was watching, I think, okay, is he almost like on the, like, it, it, it feels, this is the wrong word, but like sort of psychopathic in, in his like total coldness towards killing, um, killing these living, you know, these rabbits and mm-hmm. the way that he is very unemotional about killing Phil in the end. So yeah, maybe, maybe there's something there. I will say about, um, Cody Smith McPhee is that, yeah, I think it's totally amazing performance from him. Probably mm-hmm. my favorite performance in the film. Um, yeah. I think that, I think he is ultimately the anchor of the film in my mind, despite Benedict Cumberbatch being the top billing character. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Abram, any thoughts on Cody? K-O-D-I, Cody? Uh, not not really. I think he gives a really nice performance in, in the sense that I don't really think of his performance. I find myself usually thinking about a performance when it goes too far, and that was the case with my friend Benedict. Um, but but no, I, I think he, he handles himself ben. quite well. Yeah, my friend him. Ben. Yeah. But I, I think that the character I want to talk about is is jesse Plemons's character yeah um uh george georgie uh, old timer you might call him <laughs> i i, I so i think but i think i think phil calls him a number of Lord, times he calls him that a lot of times yeah yeah he does um, i think he's not in the movie enough coming mm-hmm. into the coming into the review my my two main issues with it were both i think benedict goes a little bit too far sometimes and i, and I think that we just don't get enough jesse Plemons. I think he gives a very good performance, um, and I think he's got a very compelling dynamic with basically everybody in the film. Mm-hmm. But for a lot of the film, he's out to town for the week, and and I understand completely the function of of his absence. But I just think that we lose a little bit by not having him more involved in the plot. Yeah, he's yeah. certainly the one that feels the least involved because, of course, screen time wise, he totally is. But also in terms of, um, he's kind of the glue that holds all of the relationships together. Uh, but he also kind of, for, in my opinion, I think he does a, a totally solid job, but Best Supporting Actor actor nomination, I don't really know if I feel that from him, uh, but he feels he feels a really interesting role because he's bouncing off of, in my opinion, more interesting characters. He, he is the brother of Phil. He's the no, more normal, less rude brother of Phil, <laughs> and that makes them an interesting dynamic, but it mm. also makes him the, the springboard for Phil to be an even bigger asshole. He, and... Uh, him being the husband of Rose, but kind of just the nice boy husband of Rose, makes it feel like, okay, well, she's the interesting one that's not getting enough attention, but he's just kind of, he's there, or he's off the town, or he's back, and it's interesting, but not, like, insanely so. Um, I think it is a fine job, but he's he's one of the just, like, on-the-board points of this movie. I, I don't think he's particularly positive or negative. Sure. Um, he sets up the w- story, and that's his important yeah, point of, a, of, of as a character. Um, yeah, and then he, he he fades to the background, but he sets yep. up the story because he's a nice guy and he sees a woman who's not having a good time, so he's gonna sit there and be the waiter, and he's a nice guy. Yeah, I think, a, I think a shoulder he, to cry on. You know how the uh, the phrase ends. The adage. <laughs> 
Uh, I, I I think that Jesse Plemons does do a, a, a good job here. Um, I think they, you know, he was a surprise nomination. And I think the Academy put him in just because, you know, Jesse Plemons is, is probably one of one of the bigger names in Hollywood right now. He sort of uh, arose from his early work in Breaking Bad. And uh, I, I think they want to they want to have that little uh, they, they want to be allowed to say Academy Award nominee Jesse Plemons. Sure. Uh, and and we did that, you know. Ultimately, when he becomes one of the biggest actors, uh, it, it, when his career grows a little bit more. But talking about this film specifically, I think he does a great job. I really, really love the scene when him and Rose drive out to like the middle of nowhere, at basically like the foot of that mountain, and they you know they they dance a little bit and they have a heart to heart. And he says, uh, I, I, I just thank you for making sure that I'm not lonely anymore. Because I think that gets to the heart of, of a theme of this film is, you know, Phil's lonely. That, that I feel like that at, at, the very yes. heart, at, at the very heart of his character is his loneliness. That is, that is the reason why he, he feels alone in his sexuality, in his uh, relationships with others. You know, he, and he alienates himself from others because of that. And it, it, it's a self-defeating cycle is what, is what Phil does of, of loneliness. And I think um, George is an interesting foil to that and into a lot of other aspects of uh, Phil's character. And I think Jesse Plemons does that all really, really well. I, I also love him in the scene with the governor and his parents. Uh, I, I seen that Abram also said that he loved, and I totally agree, you know, because Jesse Plemons is very good at doing, like, very awkward social interactions because he has this way of delivering that's just, like, it seems like he's never talked to a person before, and I, that's a, it's a real talent that he has. Um, if you haven't, go watch the film Game Nights. It's a, it's a comedy from 2018, and he he's a good, very strong straight man force in that because just because of that, he feels like an alien that these people are interacting with, and he feels the same in this. But he also has moments of softness, like in that scene with Rose. You, I really, I really quite like that scene with Rose, and it leads me mm -hmm. into thinking about Kirsten Dunst's performance. What do you what do mm -hmm. you what do you have to say about in that regard as we round out our four main mm -hmm. actors in the film? The husband and wife nominated duo, I believe. Exactly. Yeah, they are married. I um, believe they're not uh, I thought I heard they weren't married. They they they're, they're uh, they have children at the, at the very least. I think they're also married. Well, um, they better be married. <gasps> Especially that we're living in 1920s Montana, I can tell you that much. Um, but Rose Kirsten Dunst, I really, I really liked yes. her as well. Uh, she is, she comes to the forefront uh, when George is gone a lot and Peter is gone. Okay, and it is, it is, it is Phil versus Rose. It is Benedict Cumberbatch versus Kirsten Dunst. And if I may drop in a piece of trivia here, they were so deep in their roles in this character that they often didn't talk to each other while filming. You know, uh, while the cameras weren't rolling, they just wouldn't talk to each other. Maybe that's them staring at character. Maybe they actually don't like each other in real life. Who's to say? Um, but I think Rose is great in the scene, you know, where she... I, I think the Oscar scene for her will either be that scene with Jesse Plemons or the piano scene, uh, because both are fantastic. Or maybe one of the scenes where she's, um, you know, running... She, when she's, you know, be later in the stages of alcoholism and she's running around and... Uh, trying to uh, stop Peter from going out with Phil and stuff like that. She's great in all those scenes. I think she can do the over-the-top, the crying, no, Peter, come back. But she can also do the, 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 the when Phil comes down the stairs playing the banjo aggressively at her, and she's just sort of stone-faced, but you can see that fear and that anger in her at the same time. I think it's she, she carries it all very, very well. I think she plays a, a wreck beautifully. 
Mm-hmm. And, and Tanner, I, I think you missed the most obvious not uh, Oscar scene is when she brings Peter into the bedroom and she's hammered and she's pouring this the sugar on the table and like drawing oh, the stars yeah. in it and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think she does a really nice job of just unraveling on screen. I think so, too. And it's not only just in her dialogue. It's in what I think is one of the most harrowing scenes when she's in the alley trying to drink the last dregs out of that bottle. Mm -hmm. And and Phil is whistling at her and the camera's cutting back the the window and she can't quite see him. And then he peeks out and she's just physically falling apart. I I really Mm. think that it is a stunning performance. He he whistles the song that she was practicing and then failed to play and really, you know, make makes a fool of her and George in that scene with the governor and their and his parents. Yeah, that is that goes back to the psychological torture that Phil inflicts upon Rose in this. I can confirm Jesse Plemons and Kirsten Dunst are married. I look there you up. go. I, I just uh, command F to the Wikipedia page. They have been engaged since 2017, but I do not believe oh. they've actually gotten <gasps> married. Oh, no. The fact well, checker has been Detective Tucker. <laughs> well, 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 we'll get him to come on the show, and, uh, you know, maybe we can, we can uh, do we the can consummate their marriage. Yeah, we can nope, have the officiation. We, we can officiate their marriage. We will not consummate their marriage, Tucker. <laughs> Yeah, you, know, you gotta get a mind for comedy, Mister Man. That would make mm. a good BLBS segment. Oh, oh I see. Consummating marriage? Question mark. Officiating the the Dunst Plemons <laughs> wedding. Um, uh, but I, uh, that's all. That's all I got here. I do have some some further trivia. If you if you what if you'd be so kind to let me drop this in here in a second. Drop me with that um, trivia, man. Sounds rather trivial. Uh, to to get into character for Phil Burbank, Benedict Cumberbatch didn't wash for almost two weeks at the outset of the of filming. He also started chain smoking. Although he also he, he had smoked in real life, he felt sick after each take when he rolled he hand he was smoking hand rolled cigarettes. That's store bought. Uh, he went so far with the chain smoking that he got nicotine poisoning three times. Ugh. He's, he's committing to that role. Yeah, and uh, Kirsten Dunst committing to the bit, for, doing it for the. During it for the gram, maybe a little bit too hard there, buddy. Jake Gyllenhaal stood up and applauded when he heard that news about him not showering. <laughs> yeah, just <laughs> smelly and full of uh, full of nicotine poisoning. Kirsten Dunst also got into her role quite. She she committed to her role. Uh, she learned to play. She she apparently mastered two pieces on the piano, but they only used one, much to her chagrin. Um, Ooh, and just, yeah, just and, like in again, the movie. Yeah. And uh, we talked about how this film was filmed in New Zealand and uh, how Campion is the second woman to be uh, nominated twice for Best Director. Or the first, or the first woman, woman to be nominated. The first woman to be nominated twice, excuse me. Yeah. And it is her return, I was reading, after many years absent from having directed films. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. I actually looked up Jane Campion like a while ago because I was like, Power of the Dog, what is this movie I'm never going to watch? Uh, and I was procrastinating <laughs> homework one day. did you know? And I, and I was like, she went. She had quite a rough patch of directing like pretty poorly received films. So this is, seems like quite the resurgence for her. But I'm also stupid, and that might be incorrect. I was, you know, yeah. who's to say? I just want to say, good you job, might be Jane. Stupid. Good job, Jane, all around. But yeah, well, uh, anybody have any final thoughts on the power of the dog? I have one final thought, and I, I touched on it before, but I just think that the sound design in this film is incredible. And mm. I think that the score is incredible, and Man, the fingers along the comb is an yeah. amazing motif throughout the film. I when I'm talking about ratcheting tension, the the sort of auditory landscape of of, of the power of the dog. I think there's a lot to sell that for me. So I just wanted to shut that out. Do they do Oscar reels for best sound? Because that'll definitely be in there. 
They used to. Do they do it anymore? Will they announce my favorite award during the commercial break? Probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll see. But otherwise. Isn't it your least favorite, though? Because it's you wish it was two? I have yeah, a love-hate relationship with the Academy Award for Best Sound. It is at times amazing and at times horrible. So yeah. we'll, we'll see what it is this year, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, would I, you feel good slash bad if this won Best Sound? I think so. I, it didn't, you know. You would feel what, good slash bad? I would feel good slash bad. bad. Um, You know, last year we had amazing entries into the field. So I'm looking, I'm going to hold judgment on that until we've seen a couple more films. Sure. Because last year we had films that were like driven by the sound as a story. Sound of metal. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which I love to see. Um, And Mank. And and Mank. Um, (laughs) Oh, ye olde great sound rant from that episode. Um, Oh, yeah. But I, I think that this film measures up it's i think it's you know totally you know bar level it's it's above bar level and like abram says with the with the comb there are a lot of unique sounds in it um but i want to purview the field because unlike tanner i've like seen none of these movies so i'm I'm just getting to them all for the first time here well i've intentionally not watched them i was like yeah that's getting nominated we'll have to watch it for the show Mm-hmm. We'll mm-hmm. talk about the film that should and will win Best Sound Review, my favorite movie of last year. Yeah, yeah. We'll get to it eventually. Don't Which, you worry. Much to the chagrin of half of this panel, was nominated for Best Picture. I think it's. Uh, I, I didn't expect that it wouldn't be. And, you know, I, the, 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 the four letter name of this film, which will not be said, apparently, <laughs> where it's taboo to say the word Belfast. Uh, but, Belfast. <laughs> nice four-letter name, yeah. <laughs> June. Should, Should we give this film a score? Let's give it a score. Yeah. You know, I kind of, I kind of have a pretty good, educated guess of where it's going to go on the list after our score. So, uh, this is just, just for the procedure of it. Um, but you know, Timo's being kind of wacky because this list no doesn't exist yet. <laughs> yes, it does. This film, mm-hmm. if you could Wait. imagine it, will go at first place right mm-hmm. now. A hot take. That's where it's going to go. <laughs> I have a number plug-in. Somebody didn't open the spreadsheet, though. Nope. And, some, and somebody's Uh-oh. trying to find it. Where the hell is it? Someone's, <laughs> re- someone's really hoping that we pad for time. Somebody uh, needs to open no, up the I quest ranking. And cl- yeah. Somebody needs to open up the quest ranking. Oh, I've seen the bottom of the screen. Yep, click yep, on 2022 Oscar nice. yep. Oh, there hey, you go. How's, there you go. Uh, how's it going? All right. All righty. All right. Three, two, one. Boom. Calculating, calculating. We've got a score. It is 8.7. So that's up there. I mean, yeah. they're nominees, they're best picture. So, you know, we, we shall see where it stacks up to other films. As of now, The Power of the Dog goes as the number one best picture Woo! of 2022. Number one, baby. That's right. <laughs> but the point breakdown, starting from the top, Abram gave it a 9.5. Tanner gave it a 9.3. Tucker gave it an 8.1, and I gave it a 7.8. So I need to actually give it a 7.9 so that the uh, point break, the point fall is more symmetrical and perfect. Uh, no. Yes. I can't change no, the no. score now. That would be <laughs> illegal. I would get hunted down by uh, the Court of Quest. So it's true. I believe we, because it's the, there's only so many films and there's all kinds of craziness going on with like release schedules and where we can watch them, no random spin wheel. We're going to take no. fate into our own hands. We're going to, you know, man is created by... Like a, like a rope? We're going to grab it by the reins. To, uh, grab it by uh, the as reins. As cowboys might. Or we're going to grab it like an anthrax-covered rope. 
Yeah, really just get your get get it in that wound. Yeah. Get it in those open yeah. wounds that you guys have yeah. on your palms. What film, are we, what film are we going to watch next give time? give you anthrax? Tis more important, Tino. When, when he got anthrax from the cow, I was like, that's only something, I thought that was like a man-made thing. I did too. I don't know any. I don't know the science behind Anthrax. But to answer your question, Timo, about what movie we'll be watching next, to not further delay this episode of Quest, we will be watching Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley next, uh, oh, which can be found streaming on HBO Max and Hulu uh, for any of you who'd like to watch along. Um, and yeah, we we just talked about a GDT film quite recently for our regular series of Quest, but but he came back. With uh, Nightmare Alley, a, yeah. a remake. One of the one of the two two remakes that were nominated for Best Picture this year. I was hoping you were gonna say Pacific Rim. No, yeah, my Pacific hopes Rim GDT. Twenty thirteen Pacific Rim was not nominated for Best Picture this year. <laughs> Greatest snub at the Oscars. Well, yeah. I think it's going to be super interesting. You know, we're, we're not comparing this movie to The Shape of Water, which won a couple years ago. But I feel like, you know, I can't, I'm not going to be able to help myself. I think that that's going to be super fun to compare them, even if it doesn't really fall into our ultimate ranking of the film. And, you know, this progression as a director. We're going to see it. Mm. Uh, we're going to see the next. Is it, it is, did he make a film in between? No, so, this is this is his follow up to The Shape of Water. Okay, so yeah, that's pretty big to have two uh, nominated <laughs> films. The Shape of Water Two, it's Square, is what it's called. Oh, oh finally, the answer that we've all been waiting for. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Nightmare Alley. I've seen it already. I'm I'm excited to rewatch it. Okay, I didn't think this movie was that popular or that well received. I it's don't think it did very well at the box. It office. was it was a surprise Best Picture nominee as well. Yeah. Big surprise, gigantic surprise. Mm-hmm. Will we be surprised by the film? Will we not? Who knows? Find out next time on the Quest for the Best is 2022 Best Picture Nominees podcast TV show. That's what we're doing here. Side it's, quest. A, it's a little side, side quest. quest. We are rambling off. Um, we'll be hanging out with all of these films, all 10 of them, until the ceremony. So keep your watches tuned. Um, we're going to do two episodes a week. It's going uh, to be a great time, a wild ride. Thank you guys for joining me, talking about this movie, The Power of the Dog. And we will see you next time. Peace.